Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings. My guest today is Dr. Daniel Reno, Associate Professor and Assistant Dean for Learning and Teaching in the Faculty of Arts, Nursing and Theology at Avondale College. Dr. Reno is interested in the role which faith and religion played in the Australian Imperial Force. It's turning out to be more significant than historians have generally given credit for or that the public is aware of. In 2015, Science Publishing has released Dr. Reno's latest book, The Man the Anzacs Revered, William Fighting Mac Mackenzie. This is the inspirational story of Chaplain William Mackenzie, a devout Salvationist, who became a legend among the soldiers and their families for his care, courage, faith and boldness in proclaiming Christ to the soldiers. In the first part of the conversation, I'll be talking with Dr. Reno about the role of chaplains in the AIF and the story of Chaplain William Mackenzie. In the second part of the conversation, I'll be talking with Dr. Reno about his own life and spiritual experience. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you. It's great to have you. Pleasure to be here. Daniel, what's the stereotypical picture of chaplains in the AIF, or any army for that matter? Well, it's an ambivalent role. You're a Christian minister. Christianity stands for peace and love, and you're in an organisation designed to kill. So it's it's a difficult role. I, I guess chaplains have often been seen as uh, perhaps fuddy-duddy, a bit out of touch, uh, best used for, for funeral services for the soldiers or memorial events. But... I guess the popular image is that they're not really very well connected. But what's the reality? Well, I guess stereotypes don't come out of thin air. So we find in history there are chaplains, unfortunately too many of them, who actually fit that bill. They they were out of touch. Um, there's a, a famous story of a, a chaplain preaching at Gallipoli telling soldiers that war isn't terribly dangerous. It's a bit like civilian life, really, you know, with trains and automobiles and, and, and orange peels even. Uh, it did nothing for his credibility. We sure it didn't. <laughs> but on the other hand, uh, a good many chaplains were very much in touch with the soldiers and their lives and were able to connect very effectively. And we're going to be talking about one of those a little later, aren't we? We are indeed. So why, why do we have this difference between the stereotype and the reality? I guess it's a kind of shorthand. Uh, our modern society seems to think that religion is out of date, that it doesn't connect with the real world. And so it's, it's easy to find a few examples of that and then paint all of religion that way. But in fact, uh, chaplains, uh, the chaplains of the AIF, were often surprisingly effective. Uh, a recent study published a couple of years ago uh, identifies the fact that the chaplains were far more effective than we've ever given them credit for. But it's taken until 2013 to have a formal history of chaplains. Why is that, do you think? Uh, Australia's always put religion on the back burner in, in the public eye. And uh, it, yes, it, it took until 2013 for the Army to commission uh, an official history of the chaplaincy corps uh, for them to dedicate a plaque to the chaplaincy corps on the on the the footpath outside uh, the war memorial and to hold memorial services, so it's long overdue recognition. It's not just Australians, by the way. There's there's been a spate of books on chaplaincy in the army, 
across Britain, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, it seems as if um, we're starting to realise that that religion, that Christianity, that faith actually had uh, more impact and more presence in the First World War than we thought. Mm. So describe the work of an AIF chaplain for us. What did they do? Well, they had an official role and then unofficial roles. The official role was taking a compulsory church service every Sunday, Sunday morning, church parade, often unpopular. Uh, They also uh, provided wholesome entertainments, so they might organise sports contests, games, uh, popular lectures. Uh, They'd organise reading material for soldiers. Uh, They, of course, conducted burials. They wrote to families who'd lost uh, loved ones in the war or were wounded. Then there were the unofficial roles. They were kind of the maintainers of morale. They ran voluntary church services, um, Sunday afternoons, midweek. They'd run prayer meetings, Bible study groups, uh, baptismal classes, um, all sorts of activities. Uh, They would... Uh, buy extra supplies just to to, um, give a bit of uh, diversity to the soldiers' diets. They'd they'd, um, run canteens for them and all these kinds of things. There was really no limit. Counselling. Did they do counselling with the soldiers? They didn't use that word back then, but they definitely did. Uh, A lot of soldiers would drop by and see their chaplain uh, I've read the diary of one Catholic soldier who would have a weekly chat with his priest, mm-hmm. and it was an important part of his sense of well-being just to be able to connect with this man and and talk. I imagine that given the circumstances the men were in, that they would be thinking about their own futures, the concept of eternal life. These things would have been high on the agenda. And that was true, apparently, for the first part of the war. Yes, it's very evident in the diaries of chaplains and even some of the soldiers in the months leading up to Gallipoli and the the early part of the Gallipoli campaign. Um, Certainly the the idea that they might get killed made them think. As the war progresses, that becomes less and less evident. And I I think soldiers did the basic maths, that, that men who prayed died at the same rate as men who didn't. And uh, so the the long-term experience of war didn't necessarily lead men to think about faith. Hmm. How did the officers relate to the chaplains? Well, there are varied reactions. Uh, some officers were extremely supportive, particularly those officers of strong faith themselves. Some officers saw religion as a kind of a social benefit because it would help with morale and discipline, so they were in favour of them for that reason. There were some officers who were quite aggressively against religion or apathetic, and they could often deliberately organise work duties just when the chaplain wanted to run a church service. Hmm. And uh, chaplains would note the officers that that deliberately disrupted their attempts to work with the men. How did the men relate to the the chaplains? Again, it depends on the man's perspectives, the individual man's perspectives, and also the calibre of the chaplain. Uh, There were chaplains who gained no respect whatsoever. In fact, uh, the Australians invented the nickname uh, Cook's Tourists for many of the chaplains because they would have short 
engagements. They'd come over for a year or, or less. And uh, so they equated them to the famous travel agency of the time, Cook's Travel. <laughs> Cook's Tour. They, they're, just, they're just there for a visit. On the other hand, uh, many chaplains uh, were very close to the men. They stuck closely to wherever the men went. They got engaged with their lives and uh, they were respected, admired and deeply loved. Were the uh, chaplains ranked? Did they have a rank in the army? Yes, they did. There were basically four ranks in the army. There was chaplain fourth to first class. A fourth class chaplain was a captain, third major, second uh, lieutenant colonel and the highest rank was colonel. These are high ranks, aren't they? They are. What they wanted to do was invest uh, a chaplain with some sort of authority and there'd been quite a debate as to whether to give them military rank or not. And so they kind of had a dual system. So you were chaplain fourth class, but you wore the badges and took the name of captain. Hmm. That's interesting. What about women? How did women relate to them? I understand that there were some women. The Australian Army was extremely reluctant to get women involved. In fact, the Australian government was reluctant to get women involved in the First World War. Necessity rather than than um, any higher ideal. There were some women in the forces as nurses. Um, they haven't left a lot of evidence behind. It's it's hard to tell that they're, if their experiences are different in any way from the men in relating to chaplains. What other things did the women do? They were drivers or? No, no not, not in the Australian Army. Okay, so it was mainly just nursing? Only nursing, yes. Yeah. How dangerous was the work? As a chaplain? Hmm. It depended. Uh, chaplains were assigned to battalions. Each battalion had a chaplain attached. And uh, obviously uh, an infantry battalion is going to find itself in, in combat from time to time. And the chaplain theoretically was not supposed to be involved in combat. Their post during a battle was at the first aid post alongside the regimental doctor. And many chaplains did that. That in itself was dangerous enough because they were often sufficiently close to the attack to be under shell fire. So certainly not a risk-free job. In fact, um, one of uh, one of the chaplains at Gallipoli working at a first aid post had a bullet that ricocheted off his belt buckle while he was while he was helping with the wounded. So it could be dangerous there, but other chaplains actually stuck pretty closely to where the soldiers were in the attack. Uh, they would bring wounded men out of no man's land. They buried the dead in no man's land. Um, in some cases, they worked on, on, um, on wounded men while a battle was going on. And a number of Anzac chaplains were killed during the war because they were close to the front. Were there any rules, uh, rules of engagement around chaplains? Well, they were non-combatants and they respected that. Uh, technically, they were not supposed to go into the trenches. Now, at Gallipoli, they didn't have any choice because it was such a shallow front. But in France, they tried to stop them. Eventually, General Haig, the British commander, uh, took that order away because he recognised the value of a spiritual and moral guide as close to the men as possible. Mm. But uh, the chaplain I wrote about, for example, Chaplain Mackenzie, um, was ordered not to go into the, into the trenches in France. And one sergeant shrugged helplessly when an officer said, what's he doing here? And said, you know, how do you stop this man? <laughs> I can't arrest him. <laughs> yeah. 
So give us um, a profile of the AIF chaplains. Before we go to William McKenzie's um, story, give us a profile of the chaplains. Where, how did they get into the army? How were they selected? Um, did they apply? What was the process? And which, denomina- which denominations were represented among the chaplains? Okay, the Australian Army had a a variation on the British system. Because in England, uh, the Church of England was the official religion in Scotland, the Church of Scotland, uh, the overwhelming majority of chaplains in in the British forces were either Anglican or Presbyterian. And reluctantly, they let some Catholics and some nonconformists in. Australia, no state religion. So they decided to appoint chaplains on the same ratio as the census data. So they came up with the idea of each brigade having four chaplains for the four battalions, two Anglicans, one Catholic, and the fourth was either Presbyterian or Methodist. Then occasionally instead of a second Anglican, they would have what they called OPD, other Protestant denominations, and that chaplain was selected from Brethren, Baptist, Churches of Christ, Salvation Army, something like that. Generally speaking, the churches nominated ministers for chaplaincy positions. The army didn't um, appoint... Well, they appointed them, but they appointed them from names that the churches sent in to the army. So a, a denomination might have discussions with its clergy to see if someone was interested. Uh, many times clergymen would ask their denominational chiefs, you know, can I be a chaplain? Uh, the Catholic Church tended to be more directive. It would actually tell which priests were going to be chaplains. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a kind of a negotiated process in the selection of chaplains. Did this work out in practice in terms of, um, you know, the, the Catholic-Protestant divide, for example? I'm or, not, not well, sure. In, well, in just in terms of the fact that some, some of the soldiers were Roman Catholic, some were, some were Anglican, but you had... Um, those uh, chaplains working, do they work only with their own denominational groups or across those groups? Technically, a chaplain belonged to a brigade of about 4,000 men and was there for the religious needs of his denominational, uh, you know, association, affiliation. But in practice, the four battalions were often separate in a, in a battle context or on the battlefield. And so a chaplain had to look after everyone in his battalion, regardless of religion. So when the brigades together out of the line, compulsory church services, uh, you could choose which of the four you went to. Um, but in the line, chaplains had to look after the spiritual needs of everyone. There's a, a classic story of a, a Catholic priest at Gallipoli who was asked, um, you know, do you know of a Jewish chaplain anywhere? My Jewish mate is dying. And the Catholics said, well, look, if, uh, if, if he'll accept my services, I'll treat him as if he's one of mine. And the Jewish soldier was really happy mm-hmm. to have that kind of uh, cross-religious association. War does strange things, doesn't it? It does. And, and the soldiers certainly got very upset with chaplains who wouldn't do that kind of thing. Uh, a Presbyterian wrote very scathingly in his diary that, uh, that the Anglican chaplain wouldn't allow him to take communion because he wasn't Anglican. And he writes, you know, as if that matters here. <laughs> yeah. What was it about Chaplain William Mackenzie that made him so revered by the Anzacs? Ah... <sighs> Read the book. <laughs> Look, there, there, there's a number of qualities, really. He's, he's physically a big man. He's an impressive man. He's, 
He's uh, 185 centimetres tall. He weighs 108 kilos. He's got huge fists, um, physically robust. He's energetic. He, he just, vitality pours out of him. He's charismatic. He's, uh, he's by now an accomplished public speaker. He knows how to deliver interesting, uh, story-studded sermons with a real punch. Um, he's, he's got a ter- terrific sense of humour. He'll laugh at, at, at others, but he laughs at himself a lot. He's also a fantastic listener, and this matters. He's, he had a, a phenomenal memory. He could, he could meet anybody once and remember them for the rest of his life. So, you know, a, across the war, he met thousands of soldiers. He, could, he remembered their names. He could talk to them about their own jobs in ways that made them feel like he understood. He had spiritual integrity. He was extremely upfront about what he believed, you know, and, and a lot of what he believed was the exact opposite of what Anzacs did for fun. He was against alcohol. He was against gambling, swearing, womanising, smoking. How does a man like that relate to the average Anzac? And yet he did it. It's an extraordinary thing. And, And they respected him not despite those convictions, but because he had those convictions, but he wasn't pushy about them. He stood up for them. For instance, when he was walking through the trenches, he'd sing in his loud voice as he came through so that he wouldn't embarrass the soldiers by coming across them in the middle of a, a game of poker with, you know, drinking their beers. They could discreetly put them away. And he, he understood people and met them where they were instead of expecting them to, to come across to where he was. Well, that's a pretty intelligent approach, isn't it? Extremely to, intelligent. Not to embarrass. Not to embarrass. And then he... He, he was extremely courageous. He was always where the men were. For instance, a chaplain didn't have to participate in training exercises, but he did. He'd go on the long desert marches. He'd dig trenches. He even did target practice. And the funny thing is he was better at all those things than the average soldier. He's twice their age, but he carries their packs when they get tired on marches. He's at the front line. That's a way to impress someone, isn't it? Oh, yes, especially a young man. Physical strength. His dugout at Gallipoli was closer to the Turkish trenches than anybody else's. You know, he, That's impressive too, isn't it? That it, would impress the men. It, it, it did. He, and he did so much extra work for them, like digging stairs in a steep part of the track overnight because men carrying stretches and water were slipping there. So he just dug it. I mean, he worked all day. A lot of it was very physical. Then they did the burials at night because that was the safest time to do it. You'd think when he had one night off, he'd sleep. No, he digged stairs in the side of a hill. Hmm. Naturally, the men revered him. So that's authenticity, isn't it? That's, that's being in your own life what you say you're about. One of the things the Anzacs noted about him was his absolute integrity. And, um, you know, you can't live cheek by jowl with people for three years and con them about your character. And and the soldiers deeply admired the integrity of his character. Tell us about his, his life up to the First World War. Give us his background. Okay, he's born in, uh, in Scotland, lowland Scotland, from uh, Highland ancestry. 
strict Presbyterian upbringing. He, he described his childhood as uh, porridge, the shorter catechism, and lots of straps. Um, <laughs> A, a, a bit of a pugilist as a young man because he was big. The family migrated to Australia when he was 14, settled in Bundaberg on a cane farm. And he really struggled with his own religion. It, it, he found it joyless, just a bunch of rules. But at the age of 19, he saw the Salvation Army in action and was just impressed at the way they connected with real human needs. You know, he, he said, wow, what a religion. This is the religion for a fighting man. And uh, to, to get down there in the mud and the dirt and, and wrestle with Satan over souls. So he became a Salvationist at 19, trained to be an officer, and then served in some of the toughest towns in Australia, the, the coal mining towns, the steel towns, the, the gold digging towns, where, where men were hard and, and, and life was rough. And, and that's where he learnt how to communicate Jesus to the hard-bitten working man. He comes to chaplaincy in his mid-40s. Yes. How did he come to be the chaplain? Did he volunteer or was he drafted? The, or? the moment he heard war broke out, he wrote to the Salvation Army chief and said, please, 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 can I be a chaplain? It had been his ambition all his life to, to be in the army. Well, he was in two armies. He was in the Salvation Army and then he was in the AIF. What was his rank in the Salvation Army? He began at, at the bottom as a, a captain and uh, was promoted major in 1917. Okay. He went ashore at Gallipoli. Yes. How soon after the first landing was that? Chaplains were forbidden from partaking in the actual landings, although one chaplain conveniently never heard it and had the most extraordinary two weeks, the first two weeks. Uh, the men on either side of him were killed as they came ashore. His, his clothes were riddled with shrapnel. He had a book shot out of his hands. He had a tin shot out of his hands while he was eating from it. Mackenzie must have been jealous because he just, he, wherever there's action or danger, Mackenzie's just drawn to it, you know. He lands on the 10th of May. About his first job is to bury the body of his colonel who was killed on the second day. They only recovered his body on the 10th of May. And they dug a trench in a, a grave in the side of the trench and Mackenzie took the service kneeling close to the ground with bullets whizzing over his head. Hmm. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing sort of character. So how long did he stay at Gallipoli? Well, he was there for the whole campaign. He did have a month at the base camp on the island of Lemnos, and he was also sent to Egypt for um, some treatment. His health wasn't great. He was actually suffering uh, severe dysentery. He was crawling around on his hands and knees with a stick for the last part of the campaign, but he refused to leave. He lost about a third of his weight because of dysentery. But um, because there were so few chaplains at Gallipoli, the other chaplains were sent to hospitals and base camps, he was actually serving the entire brigade for quite some time, even though really he should have been in a hospital himself. So that's 4,000 men. And he also took services for divisional staff, for the artillery, for the light horse. Mackenzie never really worried about where you came from. The only question he asked was, do you need Jesus? If the answer was yes, which of course it always is, then he ministered to you. After Gallipoli, where did he go? 
He went with the 4th Battalion to France and Belgium, and uh, during 1916-17, he served as the chaplain there. Were there any th- anything that happened in uh, in Europe that was different from his Gallipoli experience? Well, he's an experienced man by this stage, isn't he? Yes, he is. Uh, you know, the Battle of Lone Pine at Gallipoli. Uh, while the battle is going on, he crosses no man's land and goes into the Turkish trenches to rescue the wounded and bury the dead while the battle is literally going on around him. In France, of course, the the lines are much deeper. There's safe places behind. You can't keep Mackenzie out of the front line. Uh, the Battle of Pozieres, when they first arrive for the battle, Mackenzie sees many bodies of English soldiers and Germans dead in no man's land. He goes into no man's land and buries them in no man's land. Um, Pretty dangerous. Extremely dangerous. And then one night he stands on a mound, on top of a mound in no man's land and sings in his very powerful voice his famous sunshine song. He he liked to write popular songs. And this was, you know, it doesn't matter how dark it is, I, I carry my sunshine everywhere I go. And he sings this, standing up in no man's land. You know, wow. It's right out there, isn't it? It, it really? really is out there. Were there any myths around Mackenzie that grew out of his work that sort of maybe just got a little bit too big? Yes, look, uh, he's that kind of personality that that tended to generate tall stories and a number of them have have got out of control. Uh, One, uh, uh, often the soldiers would start these stories, just brag about him and, and, and they'd kind of grow. One story claimed that he was the catalyst for the riots in the brothel district of, of uh, Cairo, and that he was actually trying to get them all burnt down. In fact, he was nowhere near them. Uh, another myth is that he led a charge at Gallipoli carrying a shovel. Um, what he did do was carry a shovel when he went across to Lone Pine because he would need it to bury the dead. He buried 450 men in three weeks. And there are other tall stories that even he said, look, you know, don't believe everything you hear about me. <laughs> Tell us about his life after the war. When he returned to Australia in early 1918, he he was sent back because he was so completely exhausted. He he didn't know how to stop giving, and he spent himself so totally. He was he was no longer effective. Came home, he was an instant celebrity, and he remained a celebrity in Australia for 20 years. Everywhere he went, he was mobbed by hundreds, if not thousands, of people. It was said that when he arrived in Sydney in uh, March 1918, that his feet never touched the ground from the train station to the town hall platform. Um, In 1919, a Salvation Army official decided to test how popular this guy really is. And so he said, look, uh, Mackenzie, come with me from our Goldwyn Street office in Sydney. Let's go to the town hall. It's two and a half blocks. An hour later, the man returned alone and they said, so how's the town hall? And he said, town hall? I still haven't left Goldwyn Street. <laughs> the minute people saw Mackenzie, they mobbed him and the, and the man couldn't move. An hour later, he was still talking to people in Goldwyn Street. That's popularity, isn't that it? That is popularity. He did spend three years in charge of the Salvation Army mission in China during the Chinese Civil War under conditions that were extraordinary. Um, starvation by famine, massacres. Again, the same incredible courage. He was held up at gunpoint by bandits at one stage. Uh, And he just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. You know, they had a pistol two inches from his nose and he writes about it as if he was having a game. Larger than life, isn't he? Very much. 
How did the war impact his life? Everyone's changed by war. Yes. How was he changed by it? Well, physically, it was very debilitating, and he never fully recovered. It affected his phenomenal memory, and it reduced his vitality. Spiritually, he wrote to his wife, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm changing the way I see things. I'm not as intolerant and as dogmatic as I used to be. He said, I've seen Catholic boys die for their country as bravely as any Protestant. And, and he, he moved away from focusing on externals to looking deep into somebody's soul. You know, when a, when a soldier who gambles and drinks and swears will sacrifice his life to save his mates, it, it, it shifts your focus onto the most Christ-like aspect of him. Mm. You know? mm. So tell me about the, um, the experience of chaplains from the war. What did they learn? What did the army learn? What did the chaplains learn from their experience of the First World War? Well, various things. Some chaplains actually lost their faith. Uh, some kept their faith but found they could no longer be ministers. But one chaplain summarised what he learnt from, from his experiences of the war. And he said, there are six things that, that I learnt from the Anzacs. Number one, the men believe in prayer. Number two, they believe in life after death. Number three, that the Anzacs see sin differently from the church, but more like Jesus and the prodigal son story. They're... they're they're not so much worried about drinking and gambling and swearing, but they, they, they're more interested in honesty, integrity and loyalty mm -hmm. as being the essential qualities. Then he said the next thing he learnt was that the, the Anzacs admired, above everything else, unselfishness, courage and sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And those three qualities are at the heart of the story of Jesus. Mm-hmm. He said that he learnt that the soldiers were not the slightest bit interested in denominations. They were interested in Jesus. And lastly, he said uh, they taught him to see the greatness of the common man, that in every person is the spark of God. I think you can see there the, um, some of the reasons why Mackenzie was so influential because he was pretty close to that, wasn't he? Oh, absolutely. And I, I think... You're right. This is what makes Mackenzie such an attractive personality. He he really strips away the superficial aspects and, and focuses on the core things. What is the character of Jesus? How can I reflect that in the way I relate to other people? So this chaplain's telling us what he learned. What he learned was what Mackenzie was doing, really, and in, essentially. And in fact, this chaplain, Chaplain Galt, practiced this himself. Galt was never a frontline chaplain. He, he was always in the rear, and yet he developed the same, uh, you know, he attracted the same kind of respect that the frontline chaplains did for similar reasons, integrity of character, uh, loyalty, hard work. Daniel, what are your hopes for your book on Chaplain William Mackenzie? What lasting influence would you like it to have? Mackenzie's fame was compared by some journalists after the war as being on the same level as Prime Minister William Hughes and uh, General William Birdwood. That's an extraordinary claim when you think about it. A, a chaplain of one battalion, and yet he was famous across the nation and famous for his spirituality. That was always the quality that people mentioned. And yet we've forgotten him entirely. The, the Anzac story is exclusively secular today. 
If Mackenzie mattered this much to the Anzacs, if we claim to honour the Anzacs, shouldn't we be honouring this man? Mm. What my ambition for this story is that that secular Australia hears this story and builds it into their memory of Anzac. Now, if people would like to access your book, what's the best way to do that? Well, there's the best way and there's the easiest way. The easiest way is through a Christian bookshop. But the best way is to order it through a secular bookshop because then they go, ah, people want this book. They will stock copies and other people walking in off the street have the opportunity to see the story of Mackenzie and read it. So I'm hoping it shows up in secular bookshops because people ordered it from there. So let's just give us the the title and the, I know it was published this year, Science Publishing. Science Publishing. The title again is The Man the Anzacs Revered, William Fighting Mac Mackenzie, and it's by Dr. Daniel Raynaud. We'll go to a break now. When we come back, I'll be talking with Dr. Daniel Raynaud about his life and spiritual experience. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 2 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3ABN Australia, all one word, .org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc, PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. If you've just joined us, I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and you're listening to Life Learnings. My guest today is Dr. Daniel Renault, author and academic, and he has just recently released a book, The Man the Anzacs Revered, William Fighting Mac Mackenzie. Daniel, tell us about yourself and your own background. Well, my surname is a bit of a giveaway that I've got uh, French background. Uh, Mum and Dad are both French. Uh, Dad was actually born in Vietnam when it was a French colony, lived there for 30 years during the, the, um, the, the War of Independence. Uh, many exciting stories he had of uh, the narrowest escapes in various and sundry ambushes, first as a soldier, then as a truck driver. And uh, met Mum on furlough in France, married. They went back to Vietnam for a few years, but then the French were forced out Spent some time in France, and uh, while there, running a, a small farm, he, he read some Adventist literature on how the Jews preserve grape juice without it becoming alcoholic. Uh, he got interested. He was always a philosopher. He'd read every religion under the sun. And uh, when he studied the Bible, he, he kind of said, well, yeah, the Adventist understanding of it is what I've already recognised to be true, particularly prophecy. He, he, he understood all the historic context of it before it was interpreted for him. Then they moved to Australia in 1958, uh, lived on a small farm west of Armidale, the New England area, and I was born in Armidale three months after the family arrived. Uh, French is my first language because mum spoke no English. And... Uh, Yep, a few years in Armidale, then moved to Ipswich. 
in Queensland, and then Dad was asked to start um, a French department at Avondale College, and so we moved to Avondale in Kurenbong in 1966, and that was the rest of my school life, and then through college until I graduated. What took them to Armadale? It was the farm, obviously, but... Yeah, well, Dad's best mate from Vietnam um, didn't go back to France. He went to Australia and saw this sheep farm and said to Dad, come and join me, you know, it's a fabulous life, bit of the frontier, and uh, that's what brought us to Australia. Did he have any background in sheep farming? No, his background, well, his father had run cattle and coffee plantations in Vietnam, and uh, so he had some experience in that. He was also a truck driver. Um, He was never any of those things. He was always a philosopher teacher, but uh, as with many men of that generation, you did what you needed to stay alive rather than what you were yes. actually good at. And he studied at University of New England. He began a bachelor's degree just out of interest, but it ended up uh, being professionally useful once he became a teacher. Mm-hmm. So you came, you came to Avondale. Did you have any siblings? I have a brother and three sisters, two older sisters, one younger. Uh, something tragic happened to your brother, I understand. Gabe was uh, a film director. He was the um, production head of production for the Adventist Media Network, and he was killed in a road accident in 2000. Hmm. How did you react to that? Look, I've, I've had a golden run all my life. Pretty well everything I've wanted has come to me and has come easily. So that is the first time in my life that I've had to face tragedy. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's easily the worst thing I've ever experienced. At the same time, uh, not only me, but I think our whole family had a real sense of the presence of God through it. It didn't change its tragedy. Your parents were alive when when Dad died? Parents, yeah. And, you know, it's nothing new that it's a terrible thing for a parent to have to bury a child. Mm. And it doesn't matter how old the child is, it's still a shock. Let's go back a little bit. What was your experience of school here in Australia? Well, I was always good at school. I was one of the nerdy kids. I was terrible at sport. Um... So, yeah, I actually loved school. In fact, I loved school so much I've never left it. I uh, became a teacher and just, you know, was further up the front of the classroom, really. So what were your interests when you were growing up? Uh, Well, I I loved history. I loved uh, literature. I loved any philosophical discussion. And your PhD is in history, isn't it? Yes, I did a doctorate on uh, the way the First World War was represented in Australian films. It's basically a study of the Anzac legend over 80 years through our cinema. So you had this interest in history going way back into school. My dad was passionate about history. I read history for fun. Our house was full of history books and geography books and philosophy books and great literature. It was the environment I grew up in. Perfect environment for a later academic, isn't it? Uh, Yes, rather. So you love school? Yeah, I did. You love reading? Yes. And you had an interest in history. What were some of the other interests? I understand that you're a musician. Yes. Look, I, I picked up the guitar as a, as a teenager, and um, I've, I've found that a terrific way to express my soul, particularly my spiritual dimension. I, um, I do some songwriting. I've recorded three albums of my own music. I'm uh, no world beater as a singer, but I do love 
the process of trying to capture in the freshest language I can, not the theory of Christianity, but it, the experience mm-hmm. of faith. So it's kind of songs from the road, if you like. So music's a big part of your life, reading, yes. reading, school, you, you don't like sports? Well, I've, I've developed a, a bit of capacity as a, as a young adult. I sort of, the coordination caught up a little bit. So yeah, I enjoy, I enjoy cricket. Um, I can hold my end up in table tennis game. I played a lot of basketball. Um, but also picked up the, the, uh, the hobby of making model planes as a teenager through a friend who, who was into it. And uh, I'm not the greatest model maker in the world, but I love the stories behind the model. So I'll, I'll, I'll build a plane and, and, and um, put the markings on it of a particular pilot whose story I've read up and, and written a sort of a pocket biography. So that's a, that's a fun hobby. Tell us now about your experience of religion. Well, I grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist home, and it was characteristic of the time. It was a conservative era, and uh, I put a lot of work into being a good boy. And I was. In fact, you can ask my mum, and she'll still say that I was a good boy. But at the same time, I was terrified of the Second Coming. I was, uh, I was afraid of God. And uh, around the age of 16, I, I was listening to some of my brother's friends speaking about, about the gospel, about grace, about the forgiveness and the love of Jesus. And gradually over a period of several months, I, I made a startling discovery. I'd, I'd always heard, I'd even sung it, that Jesus loves me, but I had no idea that he liked me. And... That seeped into my consciousness and it stayed with me ever since. That's my touchstone. Whenever I have doubt or, or pressure, I go back to then and I remember mm. that Jesus just, you know, his idea of a great day is to spend it with me. And I'm blown away by that still. And mm-hmm. it, it was it was the revolution. It's, the, it's my conversion. And uh, it's very precious to so me. So that becomes the bedrock of your own religious experience. Very much. Tell me how you came to uh, get into this particular aspect of history. Well, I'd done my doctorate on war cinema. Um, And, you know, there's only so many war movies that were made. What do you do when you've looked at them all? So I was looking for an area of ongoing research that could combine my interests. And uh, I'm a bloke. I'm interested in war. Blokes tend to be. Uh, But I'm also, you know passionate about my faith. So I thought, what could I study uh, that would combine those two? Then I noticed that historians had generally dismissed any religious dimension of the Anzac story. You know, the Anzacs were overwhelmingly secular. They were apathetic to religion. They're the statements of historians. I thought, hmm, that's interesting because about 10% of Australian men went to church. So you'd expect that 10% of the army would have been churchmen. So I went to the War Memorial and I started reading, well, I started with the easiest stuff to find. I'll read the diaries of chaplains and see what they have to say. And then I've read the diaries and letters of over a thousand soldiers now. And out of a thousand soldiers, about a third of them talk about religion in their diaries and about a quarter of them in total talk about it positively. So it's higher than my 10%. Mm-hmm. And in the course of doing these readings, I came across the story of William Mackenzie and 
to be honest, it is head and shoulders above the other stories. He, he is such an extraordinary personality, uh, an absolute delight to research and write about. So again, I'll just ask the question, why do you think there's been such neglect of this? Well, we live in Australia. We know that Australians love to be indifferent to religion. In fact, one of the chaplains commented on that. He said, uh, the, the Australian soldier is, is a hypocrite or... Put more kindly, he's a con artist. He pretends not to be interested in religion, but deep down he actually does care about the things that matter. Mm. And I think as Christians in a secular society, our biggest challenge is how do we get past this automatic and somewhat posed indifference to be able to talk about the things that matter? Mm. Well, that's interesting that... um there seems to be this resistance against going into this area. Are there other historians who are actually starting to work in, in, and publish in this area? A few, not a lot. Uh, Michael McKernan, who pioneered the study of ancestors and religion, but he hasn't published in this area for 30 years now. Uh, um, and there are two or three other historians who have published in the area, but I think it's got a lot of potential. I, I think it could keep quite a few of us very well occupied for a long time. Mm, mm. Well, I imagine that this won't be your last book then. No, in fact, I'm plotting my next book and it's going to be on God, religion and the Anzacs in their own words. And it's largely going to be composed of quotes from their diaries and letters to prove that I didn't make this stuff up. This is what the Anzacs actually had to say. And not just the positives, also the neutrals and the negatives. So it will encompass the whole range of spiritual and religious engagement that I've picked up from Anzac Diaries. I think this is going to open up a whole dimension about the Anzac experience and the story and the myths um, that we just haven't heard before. I hope so. I really hope so. Well, maybe you'll have that uh, significant role to play in all of that. What are your personal interests now? I mean, music? Yes, I still do a bit of music. Um, I'm involved uh, this coming weekend in a book launch of Romanian poetry in translation, and I'll be singing several of the songs. Um, music, uh, model making still. Um, I, I mean, my job is also my passion, so I enjoy the, the research and writing. I, uh, I love engagement with my local church. And I thoroughly enjoy falling in love with my wife every day. It's a, it's a wonderful experience and a fabulous hobby to have. I can't think of a better one. No. Tell me about your family. Okay. I have the requisite one wife. Uh, she's Romanian-born, so that adds a little more to the cultural flavour of the Renault family. Uh, I met her in New Zealand, married there. We have two kids. They're in their 20s now. Uh, one's working in Sydney. The other's finishing a teaching degree. Now, you're a teacher. What do you like about teaching? I love seeing the light go on in someone's eyes. That's what I live for. Uh, I, I love taking difficult concepts or unknown concepts and introducing it in ways that students go, aha, I get it. Mm-hmm. That's that's just a fabulous experience. That's the exciting part about teaching, oh, isn't yes. it? Seeing, oh, yes. seeing the change in people yes. as a result of your work. Now, tell me about your hopes for the future. For my own future? Hmm. Oh, for the future of the world too. <laughs> Save the world in two minutes. Look, um, 
personally, I, I want to keep doing what I am doing because I, I absolutely love it. I, I honestly feel that I'm called by God to be a missionary to to the students that I meet. Many of them have a Christian background and a lot of them have lost sight of Jesus through the institutions of religion. And uh, I just love bringing Jesus alive again. You That's sound right. like a missionary to secular Australia as well. Do you well, conceive yourself in those terms? Yes, I hope so. I hope so. And and I hope that the work that I do with uh, with this book on Mackenzie and others that I write will will help secular Australia to see that there are conversations to be had about how Christianity has engaged and, and interacted and influenced and enriched their lives. Hmm. I find the uh, your experience about writing and being a researcher and historian, uh, I can relate to that. I have a similar interest in reading uh, and reading history. And uh, I like to write as well. Tell me about your own ex- your own experience of the writing process. I think it's similar to my teaching um, joys. I, I love the capacity of words to to surprise with insight. So I'm looking for ways to combine old words, really, that have been used a thousand times, a million times in various contexts, and and arrange them in ways so that the reader is is struck with this insight and so they understand um, you know, the concept, the idea and the power behind what I'm trying to communicate. When do you like to write? Oh, when? <laughs> I'd, I'd, uh, I'd write full time if I could. Uh, I mean, if I could just teach classes and write, I'd be in absolute bliss. Sounds interesting. It sounds uh, it sounds idyllic, doesn't it? It does. But there if, are other. If you if you really like to teach and you really like to write, then that's the yeah. that's the life for you. The interest in models that's um, interesting one because that's a bit outside of that, isn't it? Do you use that for balance in your life? Is that your recreation? Yes. Look, uh, the recreation is the model making, uh, the the music, and and reading just for my own enjoyment. Um. Yeah, it's it's a refresher. I, I I just love the model coming to life under my hands. Mm. And again, I'm I'm no ace model maker, but it is fun. It's just fun to do. We had Dr. John Hammond in um, some time ago, and uh, he, of course, is a is a great storyteller, but he has an interest in making uh, knives, for example. Yes, he's got most unusual, beautiful, yeah, beautiful knives. Yeah. So it's unusual to see those sorts of those sorts of links similar in your situation where you've got some sort of practical outlet um, for all of your academic interests. In, in a similar way, John uses that, obviously, as, mm. as a form of recreation. Yes. But he makes beautiful knives as well. They, they are magnificent. Daniel, tell us about what you've learned from your life that you think is really important. It, if I had to distill it down to a single statement, I would simply say how how beautiful and central and essential Jesus is. Uh, he's the the governing defining thing in my life. It's it's to me the difference between life and death, between joy and and, and despair. Uh, all the things that I do that I love are richer and more beautiful because I have an inkling of what of how Jesus thinks about me. Mm. 
So all these things that you really like, like history and writing, just have an added dimension because of your faith. What my faith did was was take a, a very insecure teenager who didn't know how to relate, wasn't sure if he was approved, and and give him absolute utter confidence that in the most pathetic and dreadful things that he did, he was deeply loved and safe. Hmm. Uh, and that's me. That's me. I, I'm, I'm not good at a lot of things, and I'm not afraid of that because Jesus still loves me. And it gives me the courage to actually try stuff. And I've done things that I guess I would never have tried if I wasn't secure in God's love. Tell me about your love of Scripture. You have a particular part of Scripture that you really like. What's that? Well, I'm particularly drawn to the Gospel of John and the Epistle of First John. I, I just love that they're just saturated in grace. I, I love the language and, and, and I revel in them. I actually teach the Bible's literature. And it's one of my most enjoyable teaching experiences, again, because many of my students are jaded from the Bible. And to, to have them read it anew and fresh and exciting, it's fabulous. And John was very close to Jesus, wasn't he? He was. And there's, there's something deeply gracious and beautiful about, about those two books that I, I just... Uh, relate to very strongly. Mm. Now, Daniel, we're going to ask you to come back at some time in the future and tell us your father's story. I think that'll be a fascinating one. It's a very exciting life and a very fascinating journey to faith. Well, we look forward to uh, to having you. We'll try and do that as soon as we can. I think that sounds like a, a, a a tremendous story. I'm going to ask you, Daniel, now, if you'd just like to close our conversation with prayer. We've talked about the Great War. Spent a fair bit of time on that. Many Australian families were affected by the Great War. Um, Down the generations, that impact continues to be there. So perhaps you could close our conversation with a prayer with a special reference to those families impacted by the Great War. Sure. Father in heaven, we come to you now with confidence in your love for us. And we thank you for that love. We thank you for the assurance that it gives us, the the safety in which we can explore this world that you've put us in, that we can uh, proclaim your love and your faithfulness to others. Lord, at this time of the year, and especially this year as we remember the Great War, we think of those who were impacted by it and who continue to be. Father, we we ask that uh, through the witness of people like William Mackenzie, but also our witness, that they will find in you the grace and the peace and the hope that uh, no war has ever been able to give or satisfy. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Daniel, thank you. It's been great talking with you today. Best, Best wishes for the book and for your future book that's coming out. I'm sure that will be of interest. Just remind us again of the title and publisher and how people can access the book. The book is called The Man the Anzacs Revered, William Fighting Mac Mackenzie, Anzac Chaplain. It's published by Science, and the best place to get it from is to go to your secular bookshop and order a copy. And if you can't get one through that avenue, go to one of your local religious bookstores. Certainly. I'm Dr Barry Harkin. You've been listening to Life Learnings. 
My guest today has been Dr. Daniel Reno, academic and author of the recently released book, The Man the Anzacs Revered, William Fighting Mac McKenzie. Remember to tune in again next time as I speak with another fascinating guest on life learnings. Bye for now and God bless you and keep you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.